This is Bibliovile, the terrible book exchange podcast where a wife and her husband get each other the worst books they can find. For this episode of Bibliovile, I read Unbreakable Bond by Gemma Halliday and Jennifer Fischetto, and Mick read Stephen Blackmore's Fire Season. Welcome to Bibliovile. My name is Mick Dickinson. And I'm Susan Dickinson. And we are here for another episode a couple days late. Sorry about that, unless you're listening to this in the future, in which case you don't even know. (laughs) Uh, But I am near the end of the school year and near the end of a soccer season. And both of those things make you frustrated and tired and not in the mood to record a podcast. Yeah, we were going to record last night, which would have been Tuesday night. Um, So we only would have been one day late. But... I was doing the thing where Mick came home after kind of a frustrating day and I was trying to give him some space. And then he was like, well, she's not coming upstairs. Maybe she needs some space. And then we kind of spaced each other out so much that I went to bed and we hadn't recorded the podcast. Yeah. So it's really, when you think about it, it's Susan's fault. It really is. But I've also been very tired yeah, lately. Yeah, you can't blame her for just about anything these days. Yeah. It's really hard being pregnant sometimes. It's very tiring. I grew a skeleton. A little tiny skeleton. I'm sorry, what? There's a little baby in there. What? You're pregnant? I am pregnant. That's not how she tells me, but this is how she tells the podcast. Congratulations, Susan. I love you so much. Congratulations, Mick. I love you so much. Oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing nothing. I grew a skeleton. It's the size of an orange. The skeleton the size of an orange? Which is also approximately the size of Finn's favorite toy, which is a big green rubber ball. So that's what we're going with this week for size comparison. So due date, all that fun stuff is in November. Yes. So uh, I was actually thinking about a few years ago, we took a bibliovile hiatus. We took mm, almost a year off, I think. Um, Who knows if it'll be quite that long, but I do think we will be on um, hiatus part two uh, a a podcast season. paternity leave. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll end season, season two. Yeah, start season three. Or we'll just have to front load a whole bunch. I don't know if you're capable of reading that many books that quickly. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do feel like I need to make a correction. On the most recent episode of Bibliovile, we talked about how short these books were that we got for each other at the library. And I said, I will probably read mine in an afternoon. And I feel like I need to apologize and make a correction. I did not read it in an afternoon. Susan. I read it in a morning. (laughs) If only we could all be so lucky. So tell me about this book that you read in, in, I assume, morning with a U. So I told Nick before we started that the woman on the cover of this book. Unbreakable Bond. Unbreakable Bond, a Jamie Bond novel. uh, These are my postpartum body goals i want to look like this very purple woman with very purple hair and purple lips and as mick described it last week an inverse parabola of a waist yeah her two hips uh, are on the other sides of each other <laughs> does not so the left hip sense. is on the right and the right hip's on the left pretty much and i just assumed that we were taking the covers word for what this woman looks like because uh There's no physical description of her in the book, probably because there's not really time for one because the book itself is so short. Yeah, it's more like a novella. It is. It was nice. Uh, This book is about Jamie Bond. Oh. Uh, She runs a 
private investigation agency that she inherited from her dad. He's kind of sleazy. His name is Derek. She exclusively calls him Derek. I know. I thought he worked at Jimmy John's. Yeah. Um, She exclusively calls him Derek. She refuses to call him dad. They have a contentious relationship. Um, And this this PI agency is the family business. Uh, He is having a really hard time giving up control of the business. Um, So he is always kind of like hyper involved in her cases and always calling to check up and ask about this and that client, whatever. Um, He always wanted a boy when he and his wife got pregnant with Jamie. And so he wanted a boy because he had a name picked out. Was it James? Yeah, it was James. So he named her James. So her actual name is James Bond. And she goes by Jamie. And she gets really mad when people call her James. You were asking last week about sort of the the limits of parody and fair use and that sort of stuff. And I said the concept of a spy and the last name Bond is not necessarily... Uh, trademarkable in my mind, but I'm pretty sure the name James Bond is. No one told Gemma Halliday and Jennifer Fischetto that, apparently. Uh, um, I had a nice Fischetto with uh, my Sauvignon Blanc last week, <laughs> and it was delicious. Weird, you went out to a restaurant? Hey, I'm a, I'm a two-vax man, you Susan. A two-vax I can do what man. I want. Hey, in a uh, little over a week, I will be joining you in the land of the fully vaccinated. Yes. Good for me. Time for Applebee's. Ew. So my biggest bone to pick with this book (laughs) was not necessarily about the plot or the characters or anything like that. It was mostly just about the writing style. And you, I have gotten you a couple books in this kind of writing style. so quirky? Yes. It's very chiclet and... Like small pieces of gum? A (laughs) apparently because there are so many books written in that style that is something that a lot of people like and that's fine if that's your deal i just don't like it it drives me crazy but it's hard to articulate for me why like it's hard to say specifically what about it i don't like so i'm just gonna read you some examples so in the first few pages we meet the other women who work at bond agency including kaylee Oh, I, I'm sorry. <clears throat> For a moment. Kaylee is spelled C-A-L-E-I-G-H. It sure is. I'm actually kind of surprised there's not a Y in there somewhere. C-A-Y-L-E-I-G-H. I don't know. People just put rogue Ys in there all over the place. Oh, the worst Star Wars movie. <laughs> Kaylee Presley hailed from the South, claiming she was some distant cousin of Elvis's. Blonde, blue-eyed, and bubbly, she'd cornered the market on Perky. I'd met Kaylee while doing a Sports Illustrated swimsuit shoot in Cancun. She'd smuggled a a bag of fat-free Cheetos onto the set, and we'd bonded instantly. Three years later, (laughs) Kaylee foolishly agreed to go out on a date with Nigel Owens, the top fashion photographer in London. I say foolishly because everyone but Kaylee knew about his particular fetish for bondage and tickling. When Kaylee refused to be molested by his feather duster, Nigel had refused to work with her, calling her difficult. News that quickly spread to other photographers, her agent, and every high-profile account in the fashion world. They had dropped her like a skydiver without a parachute. Luckily for her, that had been just about the time I'd taken over the Bond agency, and I'd hired her on the spot. So it's not like I can't point to a specific line in that that irritates me. It's just the whole kind of deal. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's really shrill and... 
well, don't be sexist just because I said I didn't like chiclet. The other woman who works at the Bond agency, her name is Samantha. Samantha Cross. Oh, she's a total Miranda, though. It's (sighs) ironic. Uh, Just wait. Samantha Cross had come to me from Brooklyn last year. Long legs, perfect mocha latte skin, and thick, dark curls. Sam had been a finalist on the first season of the reality show America's New Hot Model and quickly became the darling of the cover girl world, until five years later when her boyfriend Julio had knocked her up. As if taking a nine-month hiatus from modeling hadn't been enough to kill her fledgling career, it turned out Sam wasn't one of those lucky ladies whose bodies miraculously snap back after pregnancy. While she was still a knockout among normal people, the two ounces of fat hanging around her lightly stretch-rank belly put a decisive end to her bikini days. So Sam had picked up the munchkin, Julio was long gone at that point, and headed out to California to make a career change, one I was happy to facilitate. Sam had legs long enough to make husbands forget their vows, and thanks to her military brat upbringing, knew more about guns than the NRA, and her aim was flawless. Sam could shoot the balls off a fruit fly at 50 yards. So this is Charlie's Angels. Basically, Kaylee and Sam aren't super huge characters. I well, I know they're supermodels. <laughs> I could have seen this going in in two different directions. It could have been like each book in the series would alternate between being about Sam, being about Kaylee, being about Jamie, but they're all about Jamie. So these are really like supporting characters in her whole situation. That's um, how I feel sometimes. I feel like a supporting character in someone's whole situation. Yeah, don't we all? Um, be a main character in your life, Mick. Be, you can do it. Be a protagonist, not a contagonist. <laughs> um, basically, the way they operate their business is that women will come to them worried that their husbands are cheating. And so Sam, Kaylee, and or Jamie will go and seduce the husband. And if the husband cheats... Then they bring that back to, they bring that evidence back to the wife and then they get paid. That sounds like just, that's not a private investigation. That's prostitution. I mean, kind of, yeah. Which is like fair game or whatever, but still. The main plot of the book is that a woman comes to the agency. She says that she is the wife of Judge Waterston, who's a, a judge in, they're in California somewhere. Um, and... She is concerned that he has been unfaithful. And so they go to this like really exclusive fancy club. They try to set him up and he like basically goes off with Jamie and they get it on camera. And so they have this. So they get it on, on camera. Well, no, but like they have basically the two of them making out on camera. And so they are like, okay, great. We have video of our proof. We're all going to go home. And then the next morning, they see on the news that Judge Waterston has been murdered. And so they get caught up in Poison this... lipstick. <clears throat> they get caught up in this whole thing. Um, and she, Jamie, feels like she is being framed. Um, someone is setting her up to take the fall for this. Uh, then they realize that the woman who came in to give them the case was not actually the guy's wife. So they're trying to figure out who this woman is. They finally find her. They track her down. They find her in her apartment. Someone has shot her. No, no. <clears throat> so we're, we're just in this whole intrigue. And there are two male characters that become vaguely relevant throughout the book. One is the assistant district attorney whose name is Aiden Cross, who is on this case um, and who keeps trying to arrest Jamie. And then the other is 
this guy that she's known for a really long time. He's a photographer. So she met him during her modeling days. And uh, he sometimes helps out the agency. And he's being kind of shady. So like I picked up at the very beginning, like, well, something's going on with Danny, which is the photographer guy's name. And like, he's he's not being upfront with her. He's keeping something from her, uh, which does wind up being true. I'll get to that in a little bit. Now I have to remember what I was going to read now. Oh, okay. Um, at one point, they are trying to ensnare someone else so they're at a club. We slithered onto the floor, grinding our hips to the base. The music and vodka weaved through me, creating a spell that transformed me from an impatient PI slash homicide suspect into a music video dancer, bouncing more TNA than Beyonce. Just another example of the writing style that I don't really like. One thing that I really did like about this was she runs into several other women throughout the course of the book that she has helped in cases before. Um, two of them are strippers that work at a strip club, I a strip club, yeah, called The Spotted Pony. And then another is a woman that she meets in a jail cell that like know her and are like, yeah, I'll help you out. Like you help me out or you help my friend out or whatever. Um, that part was kind of fun. She gets caught. They break her out of her hearing, which that seems a little unrealistic to me. Um, They break her out of their hearing by, like, the two strippers bring in a costume change and a wig, and then they cause a commotion, and she changes her costume and then escapes. Who would ever set up a piece of fiction where the inciting action takes place during a court appearance on this podcast? Uh, definitely not, not me. During Molly's Monsters. You don't even remember it. Okay. But, it wasn't chiclet. Alright, sorry. I forgot. Uh, Only small pieces of gum. (laughs) Only small pieces of gum. Um, turns out in the end, Danny did lie to her, um, about knowing about a connection between her and the judge. Uh, he called the cops on her and withheld a lot of information from her and was ultimately responsible for her getting caught. Mistrial. But then at the end, they still have this, like, weird romantic moment. He is played to be a total skeezball throughout the whole thing. Like, he's this womanizer. They have a very platonic relationship, but then they have a weird, like, will they, won't they romantic moment at the end, which I thought was really gross. Um... She also has a romantic moment at the end with Aiden, the assistant district attorney. And so then there's a whole, like, will they, won't they? I feel like you could have just picked one. It was weird for her to have two possible love interests, neither of which were particularly good. Um, Sorry, what book are we talking about? Is this Twilight or... Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> fair. Fault in Our Stars. Or... <laughs> have you ever read The Fault in Our Stars? Have I ever read Twilight? No. Um... Overall, like, it was silly. It, it was kind of fun. It was pretty easy to read. I didn't love the writing style. Um, but it was, I mean, less than 200 pages, so I'm not going to complain too much. I do want to end by telling you about some of the other books in the series, which include Secret Bond, Lethal Bond, Dangerous Bond, Bond Ambition. I actually really like that one. Ionic Bond. Fatal Bond. Um, so, yeah, that was... Unbreakable Bond, a Jamie Bond novel. Who did it? Gemma Halliday and Jennifer Fischetto. No, like who murdered? Oh, it was the guy's wife, the judge's, the real wife. Um, so why was the there whole a fake up. wife? 
uh, because the real wife hired the fake wife to hire Jamie so that she could set Jamie up and then she would basically not have anything to do with it. She paid a bunch of people to put this whole scheme together. Always so a great idea. She didn't have to be directly involved. Um, but she got arrested. Always a great idea to bring more people into your criminal conspiracy. Mm-hmm. The more the merrier, they the say. The more the merrier. Indeed. Especially if you're paying them and you have record of that payment. <laughs> Hard cash is the only way to, uh, I should know. Yeah. Anyway, um, my book was nice and short. How was yours? My book was uh, also nice and short. My book capped out not quite as short. It capped out at 294 pages, which is a beautiful little uh, scenario. Did you finish it in the morning? Uh, no, I finished it after doing a whole lot of mulching work. Um, <clears throat> Susan, you're familiar with a small... It's uh, It's like a local restaurant. I don't know if we've ever actually eaten there. Uh, since moving to Iowa City, uh, but you're familiar with this this uh, uh, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but Pizza Hut. I think I've heard of it before. It's pretty niche, though. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever been there myself. Well, they had a uh, a saying, a phrase, a slogan uh, in the in the '90s and early 2000s, and it was, was it Think Outside the Bun. No, I'm sorry, that's Taco Bell. Was it Live Moss? That's Taco Bell, uh, like Taco Bell's canon, um, <laughs> and. <laughs> all I can think is pra- really all, I can, I, all I can think is uh, uh, pomp and circumstance. I can't remember the 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 Pachelbel's canon. Was it bum, was it bum, have it your way? Beef, cheese, lettuce. Was it have it your spread. way? Was it I'm loving it? No, it was nobody out pizzas the hut uh-huh. because how, nobody out Java's the hut. How could you out pizza the pizza hut? You know, that's it's right there in the name. Mm-hmm. It's a hut made of pizza, pizza, cheese, pizza. And there's just mozzarella cheese and don't forget the pudding vat. What's the what's the marinara sauce dripping from the ceiling tiles? Indeed. Um. So the the nobody out pizzas the hut. And for a very long time, I thought that nobody out pizza is the hut. That's what I'd been told. And then I ate at uh, real pizza restaurants. I'm like, oh, wow. a lot of people, a lot out of people, in the hut. indeed, out pizza the hut. Now, I'm not going to say that a lot of people are able to do this, but when I saw this uh, book that promises a whole lot of mage and fires and an Aztec god, mm-hmm. we were saying this is kind of crazy. And we said nobody out crazies the Yasmin. Nobody out crazies the Yasmin Galanorn. Crazy Yasmin Galanorn. This out crazy the <gasps> other world series. And I don't know. I never read book seventeen out of nowhere like you did. But uh, uh, I th- I believe this is book four, maybe five of this series. And who boy uh, did do I understand what you went through? Did it just drop you in and take off at a million miles an hour? It did indeed. So I'm going to read a couple of the background pages. I stopped taking notes around page 33 because then it starts just being normal bonkers, not backwards bonkers. About 500 years ago, give or take, a Spanish dickhead by the name of Hernán Cortés de Monroe Pizarro Altimonaro, Marquis of the Valley of Oaxaca, a title he gets later, shows up on the Aztecs' doorstep and proceeds to kick, kick seven shades of shit out of them. It's touch and go for a while, his attention split, blah, 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 blah. 
he turns his attention not only to conquering the Aztecs, but their gods too. Cortez puts a lieutenant, a guy named Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo, in charge of the invasion of the Aztecs' 13 heavens. The ace up Cabrillo's sleeve is an 8,000-year-old djinn named Darius that Cortez loans him in alliance with the Aztecs' own wind god, the feather serpent Quetzalcoatl, who's turned traitor for fuck knows what reason. <laughs> gods fell like dominoes, and I'm going to do great at Aztec gods. Tlok, Ehuina, Caracule, Tzapoca, Hitzopotlitli, Hikototli, Ometlo, and on and on and on. Then they reach the Miklan, the Aztec land of the dead, where it's two ru- <laughs> two rulers, Miklan Huiti and his wife Miklan Huati, uh, or Watol, excuse me, set a trap. Q, capital case, epic god battle. Doesn't end well for anybody. The conquistadors die. Quetzalcoatl is seriously wound- wounded. Darius is trapped in the bottle. Miklan is turned to jade and trapped in a hole deep below Miklan. So that is what the- about his wife? Uh, we'll get to that. She becomes Santa Muerte, the patron god- goddess of uh, drug cartels. So, you know when your book more or less starts with that level of, of historical uh, fiction and, and magical historical fiction at that, that this is going to and be good? crazily spelled words. So, the wife, uh, by the time I'd ran into her, she'd restyled herself as a folk saint in Mexico by the name of Santa Muerte. The saint of death. Yes. Uh, she's got uh, Lady Death. Uh, she's got other names. La Flaca, La Señora de las Sombras, Saint Death. She's a saint for the outsiders, the narcos, the disconnected. She's not evil. She's not good. She is death and blood, lust and love, vengeance and redemption, and all the visceral things that make us human. She's as messy as life, inevitable as death. She is the saint of last resort. And I had to go and marry her. Really? Yeah. Uh, okay, so who who is our protagonist? Our Who's protagonist telling is us this Eric story? Carter, a, a, a Eric Carter, trainer to the stars. No, he is a <laughs> uh, narco, not a narcomancer, necromancer. Narcomancer would be a pretty fun little oh, wizard. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. A drug dealer for the wizards. As it turns out, the cosmos doesn't like paradoxes. Mahanta Wheatley is the king of Miklan. The king of Miklan is married to Mahanta Waddle. I'm married to Mahanta Waddle, so I'm the king of Miklan, except Mahanta Wheatley is the king of Miklan. The universe's solution was to swap Mahanta Wheatley and me. That little detail about Mahanta Wheatley being turned to jade is kind of important because I find out real fast that green is so not my color. I'm turning to stone. Blah, 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 blah. He makes a deal, and it turns out the end deal is to burn down the uh, afterlife with this fancy Aztec god lighter. He refuses because that would kill all the souls in it, kind of like that Grim Reaper book I read. Uh, And so now they're coming for him in Los Angeles, uh, where this plays up like a wildfire uh, aspect. Like, you know, it's a pretty cool little setting that, like, no, all these wildfires are hitting L.A. Like, it's a a nightmare scenario that they've reached main downtown L.A., but it's not because of wildfires. It's because the Santa Ana winds and the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl are on revenge for this one little necromancer in in L.A. And they're using magical fire to burn it. Okay. This is bonkers, but I'm kind of liking yeah. your description of it so far. Um, How was, like, the writing and everything? Was it fun? It was, it was, uh, it was good. It was not as good as Yasmin Galnar because Yasmin Galnar brings that special something of home with it. Yeah. And there's just no denying that Otherworld does not work without that, the meetings with the steno pad around the table. That's yes. that's core to Otherworld's charm. Yeah. And this one is very John Constantine. He looks like John Constantine and it's written like John Constantine where he's kind of hated by everybody. The cover is a ripoff from a yes. Constantine movie poster. Yeah. And so he's he's uh, hated by everybody and he... he isn't super powerful. He's pretty powerful, and he usually uses his wits and his wiles and not his magic to get away. But there's a <laughs> there's a whole uh, secret cabal of magicians and wizards and mages all over, uh, and L.A. is like a, a core of it. Um, 
What is this guy's name? Eric Carter. Okay. Um, and he runs into vampires, Aswang, Naga, Ibu, Gogo, Zana. He is outcrazing a lot of people. Uh, it also just includes some of those throwaway lines that are a lot of fun. Uh, talking about his bird tattoo, he goes to get a, he gets poisoned by a poison mancer early in the book because he thinks he killed his mom. The poison mancer thinks Eric killed his mom. So he goes to like a magic doctor and she puts a stethoscope on his heart. Uh, she pulls all the, the poison out of him and it's a disposable plastic water bottle filled with Atari black liquid, which I think is really cool. And also the way they represent lung cancer in, uh, Constantine the movie. Huh. Uh, where is the, oh, it's 33, not 23. Sorry. No, bird's tattoo. Where's the bird's tattoo? Oh, there it is. Is there something wrong I should know about, I say? One of your tattoos tried to eat my stethoscope. That's new. Let me guess. The birds? One of the tattoos on my chest, right in the middle, is the circle of Celtic ravens. When they're charged with power, I can turn them into actual ravens that fly (laughs) out and make somebody else's day really miserable. Until I use them, they shift position within the circle, changing configuration from moment to moment. After they've been used, they're just another static tattoo until I charge them again. Thank you for the D&D character idea. Uh, when I was turning to Jade, all my tattoos stayed intact, but this one changed. Instead of Celtic imagery, they look more Aztec and they're not ravens anymore. I think they're eagles, which is also very fun. Um, he has a friend that is in, like, runs a criminal gang, because mages are just basically all criminal enterprises. I'll get to my favorite part about this book and how it relates to mages. Uh, but his friend who pretended to be the Baba Yaga of the Mexican narco underworld, uh, and so was, uh, a bruja. She okay. pretended to be a bruja uh, and then was found out not to be a bruja. And so she went back to being her like five, six, 120 pound. Uh, <laughs> she still dresses like tough, but she's just a, like a, a small person. Uh, she carries a big machete along her back, which is great. Uh, he, okay, I feel like this has some pretty good character building. In he here. carries a straight razor uh, as his little weapon yeah. of choice and a messenger bag. Uh, and then, <laughs> okay. He... As part, uh, I just, I'm going to read it. My goal going to this Aztec underworld had been to kill Matu Wheatley and hopefully stop the progression of the J taking over my body, then kill Santa Muerte for killing my sister, though I wasn't picky on the order. Only it turned out to be a con job, and Tabitha and I were the mark. Santa Muerte as their alter ego, Metawatl, and Metawati wanted me close enough and mad enough that I'd stab at least one of them in the heart with a god-made obsidian knife. If that sounds like a sacrifice, it's because it was. Once I did it, the connections between me and Metawati and Tabitha and Santa Muerte would be so strong they'd boot us out of our bodies, letting two gods wander the mortal world in more than just their followers' dreams. But I've never found a plan I couldn't fuck up. <laughs> I turned it around and shoved the knife into my own chest instead, which I don't recommend, by the way. <laughs> instead of the bond of Matawati strengthening, it snapped. In the seconds I was dead, Tabitha got hold of the knife and stuck it in the Santa Muerte. I was too late, so I did the only thing I could think of. I yanked the knife from Santa Muerte's bony chest and shoved it into Tabitha's in a desperate attempt to reverse whatever was happening. I don't remember much <laughs> after that. Yeah, unsurprising. It's a uh, lot of stabbing. So now Tabitha and Santa Muerte inhabit the same body, but are a new thing that is both of them and neither of them. Uh, and sometimes it's a nine foot tall bony woman <laughs> with like in a wedding dress. And sometimes it's a small Korean woman. And sometimes it's a 16 foot tall liger. Or oh whatever. yeah. That's, that's uh ba- ba- hot and badgered. <laughs> uh, I was thinking you're going to shout out Rodney, the bone golem. Oh, Rodney, the bone. Golem. I do really like this. Uh, so my favorite thing about this book is that the pl- the plot is that there's these fires going on, but Eric Carter's being framed for murdering people. Okay. And why? Why me? Why am I being framed? It's basically this Quetzalcoatl wants him uh, dead, but why doesn't Quetzalcoatl just kill me directly? I'm not going to tell you. 
Uh, but one of the other parts of this book is that there's like a politician. Okay. They have the cleanup crew, and it actually explains like there's mages in the press and in the cops and in the politicians, and that's how they cover up all this shit. Mm-hmm. That's how, and like part of the magic, usually almost before every single magic fight, the protagonist looks around and realizes there's nobody there because like they do do a magical spell to just basically get people to turn around and not see it. So yeah. that's kind of funny that they shouted it out. But part of it is that there's a politician he's running for the city's mayor as a mage. And he keeps trying to get Eric's help along with a uh, former high school classmate of his. They go to Mage's High School. To, like, it's basically Xavier's uh, yeah. school for the gifted. Um, that became a cop and is on the on the cleanup crew. And they're trying to set up, like, a Mage's Council. And he, like... Of course there's well, a council. Well, that's the thing. He laughs in their face. And he's like, you idiots. Everybody tries this. Like, every 15 years, someone thinks there's a high council of mages that needs to get made. And mages are such power-hungry, bloodthirsty people that they end up stabbing each other within the next week. Like, it's it's so funny how it calls out that uh, trope, the trope of, of the high council. Having to have a council. And here's why there is no high council because if you get that many powerful people together, they end up killing each other instead. Same with shifters, as we've learned. Uh, so this is pretty funny. And it was on page 69, which makes it even funny. <laughs> the door opens up to a young man in a blue pinstripe suit. Blonde, mid-twenties. One of those smiles always plastered on a politician's face. He steps to the side, weighing us in. Mr. Carter, he says, it's finally nice to meet uh, you. I'm Peter. He puts out his hand to shake and then notices the gun in mine because he basically takes the hostage and the hostage convinces Eric to come to this meeting after <laughs> all. Oh, I see. I imagine you must have some questions. <laughs> You could say that. He might be an assistant district attorney, but everything about him screams mook. Whatever he is in this lineup, he's expendable help. You can almost smell the red shirt on him. (laughs) And I thought that that was very funny that he shouted out a a Star Trek trope on the way. Um, So, yeah, a pretty good book. Uh, Very bonkers. I think it, it uses this really cool... Uh, setting of L.A. during wildfires and, like, how that's the nightmare like scenario. That. And, yeah. and the ma- the way magic is presented and uh, used in this world is nothing uh, crazy, but there- there's, like, a magical vibe around mm-hmm. everything, and there's, like, a pool to draw from and that sort of stuff, and so he draws from that. And one of the coolest things is since he's a necromancer, he can go into the other side, like, and it's very John Constantine where the other side is even drier and it's just like ash floating yeah. around like it's very john constantine mixed with it's like if you've ever seen uh constantine mixed with when frodo puts on the ring like that wraith oh, world kind of yeah. thing and what's really cool is he can see ghosts when he's on the one side and wanderers there's a whole little coterie of like types odd thomas. like odd thomas and on when he goes to the other side he can see people not distinctly but he can see basically the bright spots of their like lo- their life force or whatever mm-hmm. But on his side, on the other side, there are, like, physical objects. And ghosts abide by these physical objects because they are so, like, their brain can't wrap around that they're ghosts. Yeah. But the go- the physical objects on the other side are also dead. And so, it, like, the physical objects on the other side have to have been around long enough to create an impression. Like, the soul of a place dies in some fashion or it just becomes a, a thing and then it's on the other side. Huh. So, for example... There's like torn down buildings that are there on the other side. Even after like this massive explosion, cool. he can go into the house and he has to like open the doors on the other side because they're really there if they're there long enough. And so it's a little bit of a spoiler, I guess, because I do think this is worth a try if you like this sort of bonkers craziness is that there's an entire the Ambassador Hotel. 
Like that was a an LA landmark and it yeah. existed for decades and possibly even over a century and then it was torn down. And so it's like this thing that a lot of people have memories of, a lot of people have thoughts and feelings of. It's where our RFK was shot and all this sort of stuff. And so it's it's on the other side as the entire Ambassador Hotel. And since it's such a strong memory place, it filled itself out with staff. And so it has like ghost staff still working there, which That's I think is really cool. Yeah, I think is really neat. <clears throat> and then it's a whole thing and he gets beat up throughout the book and he just fuck it's it, it fucking sucks for him. It's a, it's a great little beat up uh, guy by the end of it. I didn't take a lot of notes. It was pretty funny uh in places it, it scared the hell out of me at the beginning and it doesn't really make a lot of sense but that's what you want out of your urban fantasy so and i do feel like there like this is always the risk we take with bibliobile right like we make a joke about how we always get each other like book five or book seven of the yeah. series um hoping that it's going to be like i have no idea what the hell's going on sometimes it is still, I have no idea what the hell's going on, but it winds up being really fun yeah. to read. Well, I do have good news, because if you'd like to sign or sign on to my Gmail oh, here, I've picked out your next book. Good. I put it on hold, and I'd like you to tell me what I've put on hold. Oh, great. This was my idea I uh, cited on Twitter. Stephen Blackmore, same author. Dead Things. Whoa, whoa. Hi, Finn. Is the name of the book. I'm gonna guess this is another book in this series? Not just another uh, book in the series. You're gonna read book one. I'm gonna read book one. Yeah, so that's what I'm getting you next next time is book one of okay. this. Should uh, I get you series. book five of a Jamie Bond novel? No. What if I did, though? What? <gasps> you can't. It's against the rules. Okay. Well, hey. So you, you keep looking, but I have that on hold for us whenever you want to go pick it up. Okay. Sounds good. I'm ready. I have to pick it up by uh, the, 26th. the 26th. I think we'll be okay. I think I can handle it. Yeah. Anyway, um, that'll do it, I think, yeah. for this episode. An episode as short as our books, I think. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Susan J. You can find me on Twitter at Dickie Ma, and you can find the podcast on Twitter at Bibliovile. The intro music to our podcast is Babe of the Night by the band Elixir off of their album Rampant. Good night, Hiccup. <laughs> night, Kate. <laughs>